Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, we're live. And this is a special uh, Google Hangout with uh, Malik Blade um, from Southeastern um, with the uh, Kingdom Diversity Initiative. Is that correct? Yes, Kingdom Diversity Initiative of the President's Office at Southeastern Seminary. Yes. So me and Malik have been talking about uh, Moonlight for the last few days, and we thought it would be good to do a hangout because I couldn't find really many any conservative evangelicals that have seen this movie. Um, and it's such an important film right now and it's very popular. And so I thought since this is an apologetics organization and we do do cultural engagement that we should engage this um, because it is a, Af it's a produced by African-Americans um, and it's a very popular film. And it was won the uh, Oscar for best picture this year. So uh, we're gonna get into it. Moonlight. Uh, we're gonna talk about uh, toxic masculinity, sexuality, identity in the church, and I think it's gonna be a great conversation. Um, again, I don't think I did. I say my name. I forget. My name is Lisa. If you're watching for the first time, I'm tired, y'all. <laughs> it's been a long day, uh, but I'm excited to have this conversation, and I'm sure I will wake up. Uh, just as soon as we get into it. <laughs> How are you doing, Malik, today? I'm doing well. It's been, a, it's been a difficult past few weeks, but I'm glad to be here with you uh, through these, these things. So that's cold for you tired, too? Cold for I'm tired, too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so we're going to get into it because not many people I talked to, I was calling around to leaders I know, and I was like, you seen Moonlight? And I was like, no. People had so many misconceptions. People thought so many different things. So we kind of want to give a spoiler alert about what the film is about. The film chronicles a guy by the name of Chiron, and it's split up into three different stages, Little, Chiron, and Black. And it chronicles his life in three different stages. His mom is a crack, a crackhead. His, uh, his dad wasn't there. And so it tells his life and it explores him trying to discover his sexual identity as well as just his identity, period. Um, and it is, to me, it was a sad film. Uh, I really, when I saw at the end of it, I was like, man, I, like I just had a lot of empathy um, because I grew up, you know, in a two parent home. And so you kind of take for granted certain struggles that people have to go through. And so it just made me, more aware of the situations people do face and the ways in which people grow up and the hardness that they have to. And you, you kind of see how people land where they land um, through this film. What, what did you, what did you get from it? If you could give an overview. Yeah. So when the movie was first mentioned to me, I heard of it referred to as just a, a gay movie that happens to have a majority black cast. And then mm -hmm. later, uh, someone said to me that it has some intersections with race and racism, and that kind of perked my ears up just because of working in the area of diversity uh, and constantly dealing with white, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, black, all those types of interactions. So 
what was said is the film is damaging to the black male identity because it presents a homosexual drug dealer. Mm. So race element, it, it piqued my interest more so in the movie. So, so, you know, I went to see it after that. And for me, I definitely wouldn't label it a gay movie per se. I think there was one uh, scene where there was, uh, uh, I guess, a homosexual act that was simulated, of course. Uh, but throughout, I think the overarching thing is that uh, that the main character, Sharon, was very much so damaged emotionally. Mm -hmm. One of those areas where it played out was in that uh, that homosexual experience. But I think overarching, that was one element in the overall story of a person who had a very difficult life. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's so important is that we we kind of read, I mean, watch these films to gain um, empathy for situations like this and also just be aware because this is things people are dealing with. And I think and we occupy more of a conservative evangelical bubble um, that people are kind of disconnected between uh, with what's going on in the real world. Uh, we have these cultural norms that mm -hmm. kind of are, if you're in a conservative evangelical bubble, you're kind of trying to fit into a white norm, uh, when the reality is this doesn't fit anything. There are so many stereotypes that were different in this film. So first of all, Sharon wasn't molested as a child uh, by by an adult male or, or female. Um, he was masculine. So at the end, I mean, at while little and black, he kind of was timid. He, I don't think he ever was feminine. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't, he didn't have that. And then also in addition, he was, um, he ended up being a drug dealer. Uh, so it's kind of anti what you would consider the norm for how we think of um, homosexual men. We think of uh, feminine, flamboyant, all of those things, and he was not. And so it kind of goes against that um, norm. And he wasn't promiscuous, because um, that's something that is also equated with the LGBTQ community sometimes when we talk about um, from conservative spaces. So I think it kind of pushes against those. Right. And ultimately, I think it challenges us as a church to deal more critically with these issues. I, even today, um, I still feel ashamed to the church's, some areas of the church's engagement in the issue of, uh, or the topic of homosexuality and same-sex attractions. I don't think we've really done Jesus justice in how we've engaged and discussed these topics from engaging unbelievers who are practicing, believers who are struggling, but also the solutions for how to work through that. So I just think the movie is helpful for us as believers because it shows us that in many cases, our perception of how this looks is different. And specifically, mm -hmm. I think highlight that we not see, have uh, such blanket statements on how we address homosexuality. I think specifically, uh, there are some variances into how these things work. Uh, many just, you know, having talked to, you know, guys about, uh, sexuality and things like that. The average straight male, I would say, equates a homosexual act with a homosexual lifestyle. So 
it's kind of like a one and you're done thing. And I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced than that and understanding that there are some people who have same sex attractions, but are not pursuing a homosexual lifestyle. Uh, they may not be in relationships with someone of the same sex. So there's there's same sex attractions that don't necessarily mean a homosexual lifestyle. And then there are people who are pursuing a homosexual lifestyle. And obviously, if they're pursuing that homosexual lifestyle, they have same sex attractions. But there are people who are pursuing a homosexual lifestyle that aren't necessarily specifically men in this case, we're talking about men. There are men pursuing a homosexual lifestyle that are not feminine because sometimes we associate homosexuality in men with femininity. And then there are some men who are just feminine, but don't have same-sex attractions or are pursuing that lifestyle. There's many factors that can contribute to someone being feminine and still straight. Uh, so most in most cases, we lump all that together and just call it gay. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's a lot more than that we need to be careful. Yeah, because it is a very nuanced thing. And I think this this film provided a nuanced view, especially in light of the fact that in church, we kind of teach people how to deal with things in this particular way that doesn't fit the framework of this movie. Uh, like we were talking about uh, the whole Billy Graham thing. And he says, you know, I was never in an elevator with a woman, you know, because I didn't want to fall into lust. Well, if you're attract, if you're how they put it now, uh, I heard um, one celebrity put sexually fluid. Uh, how is that going? What, how, how are we, how have we shaped to deal with lust if you can, you know, if you fluctuate between, um, between sexual desires, you know, kind of we have like boxes for how we deal with things as, as it relates to sexuality that doesn't fit nuanced experiences such as Chiron in the film. Yeah, I think that, you know, the Billy Graham rule worked, you know, for Billy Graham, <laughs> but may not necessarily work across the board, you know, so we can let that be the Billy Graham rule. And I think some other people can embrace it, too. But once again, that doesn't necessarily work for the person that may have attractions for both men and women mm -hmm. with the solution be, mm -hmm. don't be don't be alone with men or women. That then stifles the opportunity for one on one discipleship. So, mm -hmm. oh. That you know that might work for Billy Graham, and that could work for other people, but we can't use that as the the cure all for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, what do you think as far as the ways in which uh, this kind of masculinity or viewing? Because Chiron seemed like he wanted to be masculine to combat what he was tormented as a child. Because you see that his mom called him a faggot. The people in at school called him a faggot, and he didn't even know what that meant. Like he didn't have a framework. So he was identified. Society tried to identify him before he even really understood his identity. And that sent him kind of like in confusion from the jump because you have the person that's supposed to, you know, affirm your identity, your parents calling you one thing, the kids at school calling you something else. And then when he goes to blue, which is the drug dealer that's helping him you know, trying to be some sort of a father figure to him. He's like, well, what's a faggot? And Blue's like, uh, you know, what a, a derogatory statement that people try to use for gay people to make them feel bad. And he was like, well, am I a faggot? And he was like, well, you don't need to know that now. You're a child. And so he's, as a child, he's already identified as something without even having any kind of encounter with someone of the same sex. Right. Um, and so now he's trying to find out what masculinity is, what his identity is, um, 
through just him navigating through personal experiences without any real guidance. Yeah, this is the opportunity for parents to really play a part in how they shape their child's minds, especially in those formative years, because they're going to hear a lot of things in the culture about sexuality and, and masculinity and so on and so forth. And if the parents aren't the ones to kind of filter through those things, they'll end up really off. Mm -hmm. um, I once again, after the film, I didn't necessarily see what made the character Sharon gay. So we see at the beginning of the film, he's running away from some from children. He's around, he's around eight or nine years old, and he's running away, and they're calling him a faggot. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know why. I don't think there's anything that demonstrated that for me. Or in addition to that, I don't even think at that age it was a, a sexual identity thing where that was something that was being pursued, relationships with men and or women. It's just kind of, let's play on the playground. Mm -hmm. um, so I think once again, because he didn't even know what it was, he was being forced to think in categories that his mind wasn't even, it wasn't even there yet. Mm -hmm. And then later, uh, toward the end of the film, he ends up and who instant the friends like, you know, who are you? This is not the, the person Sharon that I know. And what he explains is when I moved from one place over to Georgia or I think Atlanta specifically, he said, I started over and I built myself hard. Mm -hmm. And he really reinvented himself and became a drug dealer and gotten really muscular and built himself up. And he he, you know, he reoriented himself to fit what he thought was proper, fitting, and just. And once again, he actually ended up becoming that which he did not want to be at first. You know, he was a timid person, more quiet and reserved, and there's nothing wrong with those traits, and he was abused uh, verbally. And then later in the film, when he rebuilt himself as a, a hard person, we see that he's kind of picked up some of those macho and you know, intimidative traits as to how he treats other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's kind of how we how we view masculinity? Masculinity masculinity is synonymous with heart. Yeah, in church culture. Right. So yeah, it it depends. So I think it's different, you know, from white and black culture. I do think it, it breaks down differently. So I'm going to speak specifically about black church culture. Uh, I think in many cases, and I don't want to make blanket statements here, but I do think that. Even growing up, I can speak for myself, growing up, uh, even in and in, 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 out of church, because I've had both experiences, uh, hip hop plays a huge part in how we as young black men see ourselves. Um, if you're allowed to partake in that and, and listen to the music and see the videos, these guys are shaping how we engage with women and how we present ourselves to the public. Um, I think if we if we really look back, you know, I remember being in middle school around the time Little Wayne started getting popular. And one thing he was pushing is, you know, I'm the greatest rapper alive. And he had the dreads and he had the torso covered in tattoos. And if you look up now, every major black male artist has the torso covered in tattoos from Chris Brown to Soldier Boy, Wiz Khalifa. I mean, you know, so and I, and, I, and I will say in my context, you know, in Washington, D.C. and in Prince George's County, Maryland, guys started picking those things up, you know, because they saw that those men were respected and women like them. So guys literally would pick up whatever they saw rappers doing, almost like a, a dad type thing or a big brother type thing. So with that, 
also come some other aspects, considering the fact that many of these guys uh, are former drug dealers and or convicts. So there's a uh, there's some elements that come with masculinity, if that's what we're gauging it from, that aren't necessarily biblical. And some of those things are uh, hyperaggression, anger, uh, things like not like not crying. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I know as a male. In public settings, and I've even talked to other guys about not really wanting to cry in worship because we feel like crying somehow makes you less masculine. Mm -hmm. In fact, Jesus is our model of true masculinity uh, and our model for how we should be as men. And in John 11, you know, when Lazarus died, he cried not necessarily because he, he died because he was going to raise him, but he cried because he was identifying with the pain of Lazarus's sisters. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see the ability to identify with others emotionally, the ability to process through your emotions and express them, and sometimes through crying. And Jesus is the model. But once again, if we stray away from the model and begin to look at the culture, we'll end up with a perverted and or toxic view of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And you see this in the movie, Chiron asks the guy at the beach, you cry? Right. You know, the guy asked him, do you cry? And he was like, sometimes I cry so much, you know, I think I'm gonna turn into, I think he's at water or something like that. And so that whole idea, but then at the same time, he's not able to communicate with really anybody. Um, but he knows how, I guess, crying by himself is, is where he finds comfort. But then he's not able to verbalize how he feels to anyone, really. Um, you see him talking about with Blue, he probably and Teresa, he got more close to than others. But even when he was dealing with his mom and he was crying at the end, it was hard for him to kind of work through those verbally. But he didn't know how to express himself through tears. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then I think on top of that, something that's important to highlight is I think emotional intelligence and the ability to express your emotions and deal with the emotions of others is actually should be looked at as a masculine trait because in actuality, that's what's needed for a man to, to lead his household, uh, whether it's dealing with his wife or his children. Uh, I don't want to say women are emotional. We all are emotional. But, uh, you know, in a marriage, both parties bring emotions to the table. And as a man who's leading and shepherding his wife, he needs to be able to deal with his wife's emotions um, and articulate his in a healthy way. Uh, and. I don't know how many times I've heard of Christian women complaining that they feel like their husband is emotionally distant or that they're loving a wall. Uh, and these are once again, not the type of men that we want to reproduce uh, who then reproduce uh, and then are, they're producing hardened young men and even hardened young women or hardening their wives. If they're going in with these walls up or this, this distance for self-protection, we know that through the gospel, we're able to let those walls down, knowing that God looks out for us, especially in the context of marriage, of course. You need to be to become one. You can't have those walls up, but you also need to be willing and able to engage uh, emotionally. So that, that shouldn't be looked at as a feminine quality, but that's actually a masculine quality. Mm -hmm. And I think in scripture, we have to see different forms. There's different types of men in scripture. Uh, when we look at, you know, relationships, Within, within men, we talk about Gideon and Samson 
and you know Gideon is the mighty man of valor um you know we always think of men in scripture as warriors but then we think about like the nuances of Jacob's life and how he was kind of like a mama's boy he cooked and Esau would kind of was the more manly man per se as we would take it so there's different kinds of you know men in scripture in a sense and we kind of have to look at the nuances and so like one of the things that the director said he wanted to portray a grown man cooking for another grown man and it not be necessarily something off you know what i'm saying about it like images that we don't see a man teaching an, another man how a young boy how to swim like understanding being able to see people in spaces and not necessarily immediately go to sexuality right um what we would consider to be you know from the west might be quote unquote gay or feminine but because the church has taken on sometimes toxic masculinity as a gauge um, by having these um, gay uh, kind of gauges that aren't biblical, then it produces a problem in how people interact with people of the same sex. And then when they have any type of deep feelings, they automatically assume it's sexual when it really could just be a genuine love for a brother or sister. Right. You know, they don't know how to navigate that space if we've only had one gauge for how to love people. Right. I definitely think it would be freeing for everybody if men were freed up to be emotional and to express those things without the the thing in the back of your mind of how they're going to look at me, how they're going to judge me, you know, so on and so forth. Um, because once again, those emotions are there and they're valid. And we have to begin to think, think outside of the terms of tying everything back to sex or sexuality. So even though a lot of men, if you're pursuing a woman, you cook for her. If you're pursuing a woman, you know, there's physical touch. But we can't limit those acts to that particular context. But there's room for physical touch in male relationships that is non-sexual. I think there's ways that a father can affirm his son with physical touch, a hug, or even a kiss on the forehead in some context, you know, but context to drive what's appropriate and not necessarily tying everything back to sexuality because there's a place for those gestures, like you mentioned, cooking, that can be there, but we can't necessarily equate everything back to a sexual uh, identity. You know, I think even still, a lot of times if, if, a, if a man dresses a certain way, at garment and then tie it to sexuality and it's like you know i don't think a garment necessarily determines someone's sexual preference it may be different to you it may be off and i'm not trying to advocate for you know men wearing pink suits to church i'm not saying go you know but i'm just saying you know it's important to recognize that we're a little bit uh as far as how we perceive things we can be a bit extreme and how quickly we tie things back to homosexuality. And we need to, I think men need to be freed up to express themselves in multiple ways uh, without their sexuality being called into question. And even if there is that thing there, that does, that does not then remove your identity as an image bearer. So even if you are that guy with same-sex attractions or in homosexuality, you're still an image bearer. Because mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the reasons people were afraid to go see this film was they said it was a gay film. And then my question to them, well, what makes this film a gay film? Because there's no actual, there's no like 
real crazy sex act. Yeah. Um, there's you can find more on daytime TV. Honestly, there's not like anything crazy. There did he does have an affection and an encounter with with the guy, but there's nothing like that's outside of the realm of daytime TV. Right. And so um, I think it's interesting that one of the things we have to be careful of and that the church has not done the best job at is how we interact with um, the LGBT community. Because if the first, if your initial response is, oh, I'm not going to see that gay film. Um, I think you have to check that when you watch films that have quote unquote sinful actions in them. I mean, you watch, you know, our favorite black films, Loving Basketball, Brown Sugar, Loving Basketball, is Fornication. I just soul food. <laughs> huh? Soul food. I just sent in soul food. <laughs> uh-huh. Brown Sugar, there's adultery. You know what I'm saying? And if you're so offended by seeing sin, then you have to be consistent across the board. So, you know, if you made a covenant with your eyes not to look at things, then I guess you just be consistent because that inconsistency is not going to be a welcoming space for people to have conversations that are really struggling because you've already said, I can't, you know, oh, I, I dare can't go to see that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, okay, that's fine, but make sure that you're consistent with what you can and cannot see because you can't quote unquote, behold sinfulness. And I think uh, as disciples, you know, Jesus uh, with the Great Commission challenging us to make disciples of all nations, we need to be, uh, to stay abreast of what's going on in the culture. And I don't think homosexuality is something new, but I think it's definitely being publicized more in a way that it hasn't in the past. So once again, as disciples, we can't be willfully ignorant about this, but we need to be prepared to engage it uh, and engage people that deal with it because they're going to be coming through the churches. And I don't think it would make much of Christ for us to only have the response of come out or things that, uh, you know, Kim Burrell has said in the past. I don't think those is are the best response if we're going to work through these things. And I, something I shared with you before is it's unfortunate uh, or it, it's it's kind of uh, disingenuous that men in church can feel free enough to express that they've fallen into drugs, alcohol, beating their wife, or leaving their family. Men feel safe enough to to confess those things in church, but to this day, uh, men struggling with same-sex attractions or past with homosexuality. Uh, don't feel the comfortability or the safeness to share that. And I think that's more so due to the church's response to these things that have not been the most Christ-like. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it's not it's not helpful if we're going to, I mean, I feel like the church is behind the curve on a lot of things. And so because of that, we're having to play catch up, but we're having to play catch up with a group, sometimes a group of people that, aren't comfortable with having these conversations. And so everything kind of gets uh, kind of, we tiptoe around everything and then it's obvious elephants in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in addition to that, 
specifically ways that we can be more helpful in, in dealing with these issues is understanding that how how nuanced uh, deliverance may look for someone who's who's dealt with this. So I think once again, our, our knee-jerk reaction has been for someone to be delivered, they should stop having gay sex. And in this case, if it's a male, all of the feminine uh, postures and mannerisms need to go away immediately. And that's, and we've labeled that as deliverance and then get married to a woman, you know, and those <laughs> aren't, um, that behavior modification, but that's not heart change, which is ultimately what the Lord is after. So while that complete deliverance can happen, we also need to recognize that there are people uh, who I believe are believers who may be struggling through this, where their deliverance process may look different. So there are some men who have same-sex attractions who may have been actively pursuing that fornicating and then they stop fornicating and then marry a woman, uh, but still throughout their marriage struggle with those same-sex attractions. And we need to recognize that that's still a work of the Lord. Uh, just as that man may continue through his marriage struggling with giving into the temptation to lust after men, uh, in the same way, there are straight men who are going to, throughout their marriage, wrestle with the lust for women. So, you know, we can't, if we, we can't say that true deliverance is never having the desire for homosexuals if we know that straight men in their Christian marriages still have those desires. So we can't put an extreme level on the, how, how their deliverance looks. But also, uh, we can't just tell, and once again, God can remove all those things, but there's other ways that it may look. Um, and the solution can't just be to marry someone off if they have same-sex attractions, just to marry them off to someone of the opposite sex, because I think it's probably the worst thing you can do to a woman is to force a man into a marriage with her and he not actually be attracted to her. Uh, we have to think about the implications of how we can be damaging people and their families if our solution is just one-off stuff because we want to be able to have an answer. We need to be able, at times, if needed, be able to say, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes we need to be quiet and pray too. But once again, just like I said at the beginning, we have to have a more nuanced understanding of what these desires look like. We also have a more have to articulate a more nuanced uh, solutions and how to deal with them moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that nuance too has to really get in there and understand people. I know people, I, I know guys who struggle with this and have talked to them they where they're crying on the phone like man i'm praying i'm fasting all i'm doing all i can and this hasn't left me you know what i'm saying so i think understanding that this is a real struggle for people to the point where they want to take their own life they are suicidal sometimes because of it and because they feel like you know they're a freak of nature or they're having these struggles and i think that poet part of entering in suffering with a person is important where well, I need to be there. I need to cry with them through that. I don't understand. I don't, you may not understand. You may not have that same struggle, but you have to be a little bit more nuanced than just saying, well, let me throw the scripture at you or let me do this because sometimes people need you to walk through with them through the process. But if you can't walk through them with the, through the process, if you're disgusted by the sin, 
if you're disgusted by what they're in, then you'll never be able to walk through the process and love them through anything. What what their whether their process looks like what you want it to look like or what whether their process looks different than you would hope it looks. Yeah. So you have to be willing to listen to people. And I think that's what this movie really points out. You see Chiron with this guy at the end. And you can make, if you just took a snapshot of that end, you can make all kinds of assumptions about his life. He's, as a kid, never had a safe space. So the fact that one of the things that really thought about during the movie and after I watched it was the fact that at home he didn't have peace. At school, he didn't have peace. No, nowhere he went, he had peace. He had a little bit of peace interacting with Kevin, just playing, and when Kevin treated him regular. Right. But as a growing up, and then he met Teresa and Blue, and he had like peace with that. But he didn't really grow. He grew up in chaos, and so understanding a person's journey, I think, is so important before we give them a prescription or solution to the problem because oftentimes we want to solve it without really thoroughly investigating how will person arrive to that place in that space and I, I think we do people a disservice and don't love them well if we listen to them and understand their position um and how they got to that place yeah i think us having seen the movie we have a lot more compassion for the main character and that's why we don't just label it, you know, that gay movie, because, I mean, you saw a really sad story. And just for, you know, the listeners, once again, a, a spoiler. I mean, you have a kid who grew up without a father and a mother who was on drugs. And then a drug dealer kind of takes him in, a drug dealer and his wife, you know, kind of take him in and try to be parents to him. But that drug dealer then dies. And, you know, one of the first friends who didn't bully him was a friend who was telling him, Kevin was telling him, you know, not to let people walk over you. So the person who he ended up having the gay encounter with actually was one of the first peers, if not, if not maybe the only, to sh- treat him as a normal person and show a level of care. Um, and then when that relationship built more, they were able to be honest with each other. Uh, so I'm not saying that, you know, these parameters make, you know, homosexual relationships permissible by any means, but what I am saying is when you understand the story behind why someone landed where they landed, you'll be more, you'll speak more carefully, uh, and then I think you'll be more gracious and compassionate as well. Mm -hmm. So once again, my summation is not necessarily a gay movie, but the story of a very conflicted and uh, damaged individual Mm -hmm. who ended up having that kind of experience because mm-hmm. you see he gets his identity from other people like so he the blue he gets the that drug dealer identity from him but then when I was looking at the film at the end when he's getting in the car with Kevin you can see that his um his license plate is black which is the nickname that Kevin gave him mm-hmm. so his identity is borrowed from what people have told him so he takes on the identity of a faggot because he, he quote unquote, takes that to heart because that's what people have labeled him. And Blue is trying to tell him, hey, don't label yourself that because you're too young to even think of that criteria. 
But then he takes on the characteristic of the drug dealer because that's what he's seen. So he takes on that characteristic. And then he takes the, the character, he takes the nickname of black because that's the nickname, the person that he saw that treated him normal and cared about him gave him. So he takes on this identity based on other people. And I mean, as it relates to in the Christian world, we have to take our P's and Q's and our identity from who Christ is and what he made us and what we are in Christ. Because if not, society, people, even well-meaning people that actually love us will give us an identity that might not necessarily be our, our true identity. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's important. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, we talked about toxic masculinity. I'm trying to make sure we cover everything that we uh, talked about uh, before in, the, uh, in, our, in our brief. Um, what am I missing, Malik? Toxic masculinity, uh, sexuality, and... and identity. Identity in church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which themes up in the movie, but also have implications for the culture as it relates to uh, church culture, but also how we engage the culture. So once again, the, I, I think it's important to highlight that. Uh, I think for me, as a as a straight male, I know the elephant in the room is, why do I need to worry about that gay movie? You know, and just being honest, that I know a lot of you know guys will look at it that way, and I would I would just go a bit further to say that once again, as disciples we need to be ready to engage the culture and we can't let our personal feelings about things uh, cause us to be willfully ignorant or to present an incomplete response that doesn't represent Christ's heart. Mm-hmm. So although it may not matter to you personally, it matters to the God you serve. And hopefully as you pursue him and grow in him, you'll understand that these things matter. Um, and going to the movie is not an affirmation of that lifestyle, but, uh, Engaging in these things is an affirmation that I need to be aware and then process through what I see in the culture biblically. Mm. And I think we do a disservice to our defenses in this position um, as it relates to sexuality. And I mentioned this when, when, when I did kind of the intro and overview of the movie of how it's not the norm of how we would categorize homosexuals. So you don't see Chiron isn't promiscuous. So I've heard people talk about homosexuality and promiscuity as being synonyms. Well, if you have, you're always going to have an exception to the rules or the stats. So if you categorize it by, well, these people, these, if you say, well, uh, they're the people that are in the LGBTQ community are promiscuous, then you're going to have stories of them in long lasting committed relationships. You know, you're going to have stories of people who only had one encounter or you're going to have different stories or you're going to have a sto- if you qualified as people being feminine, where you're going to have people that are more so leaning towards being feminine that are have don't have the desires at all. Then you're going to have people that are you know, super quote unquote macho that are engaging in in that are part of the LGBTQ community. So you can't qualify things based on this broad brush because it's not going to be helpful. If, if indeed you're going to take the position that uh, homosexuality is a sin, 
your stance has to be really strongly biblical and rooted in the authority of scripture and not rooted in stats. Because if so, you're going to have problems with defending that position. Would you, would you agree with that, Malik? I would agree. Definitely. I don't want to approach, uh, I'm very careful of approaching people with stats in general. Just, I mean, I'm a, if, if I'm just purely debating, you know, facts, then okay. But I don't necessarily approach to approach discipleship, mentoring or whatever you want to call it with, with stats. Uh, you know, stats don't change hearts and people aren't linear. So once again, the stats may say this, but that may not be who you're dealing with right then and there. So if we take on mm-hmm. the of listeners before we begin to speak, we can avoid some major missteps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important because I see people doing that all the time, especially in the apologetics world. And it's like, no, that's not helpful because <laughs> there's like 10 exceptions over here that don't mm-hmm. fit that rule. Um, and then that goes out, out the window in your, if that's your primary mode of defense. Right. So I think that's, a, that's important when we're um, navigating spaces and being open. One of the things that um, I thought was very interesting about this subject as a whole in this movie. So I operate in a lot of different circles. If you know Jude 3 Project, you've seen, you know, people who we would call more uh, liberal scholars on here, conservative, you, you know, mob- huh? you got everybody. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a plethora of people, different kinds of people, different kinds of viewpoints. And I saw my friends that were in more progressive, more liberal schools engaging this film, talking about it, talking through it, you know, trying to be culturally relevant, trying to engage. And then my more conservative friends, I'd be like, have you seen the film? Oh, uh-uh, I haven't seen that film. But then would have so much to say about the left engaging it, but wouldn't provide an alternative space for conversation. So, so it's kind of like, yeah. well, you have these complaints, but when the, when you have the opportunity to engage culture outside of just race, yeah. outside of just you know your favorite systematic theology, you're kind of mute um, and don't give critical. Um, thought to these things in a nuanced way. So I just want to challenge my conservative uh, friends that are listening, pastors and leaders, to really think critically through issues because we are behind the curve and you're you're not helping the situation if you don't know what's going on, you know, because everything can't be about just race. There's a sexuality component, especially in our African-American communities that really people are wrestling with. And I think it's interesting too that uh, Chiron wasn't molested by, in the film, we don't see him being molested because we we also think that's synonymous with with the LGBTQ lifestyle as well. (laughs) (laughs) You said what Malik, it was like a delay. I said, because of statistics, we typically think that people that are pursuing homosexual lifestyles were molested as children because of statistics. Mm-hmm. And then once again, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. So I think this movie kind of flips that on its head. So if anything you should gain from this is like, hey, I don't need this people based on what I feel they should be based on their past or their present. Um, I have to really talk to them and hear their story because you can make a lot of missteps in engaging this com- the, the community. Mm-hmm.
and not painting it as a us against them. We are, you know, or that they are worse, you know, in a sense. So. Yeah. And hopefully today we provided a better alternative uh, than what, you know, than just something that's 100% liberal. So hopefully we provided a healthy alternative. <laughs> I mean, it could be, I, I don't know. It could be considered liberal based on what, what, Yeah. I don't know. It yeah. And those terms, you know, are, are received. Yeah, I, I don't terms. think we should use those terms I, either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll say this. I, I was doing a, a podcast recently and I was talking about more so political and liberal conservatism. Uh, and, you know, I know for me, I don't fit politically. I don't fit well into either of those categories. So I call myself a, a conservative because uh, I think I can, you know, pull some things from both politically. Mm -hmm. that. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were about to make a statement about the film. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I was just, you know, speaking about uh, liberal conservative, you know, that whole debacle. Okay, gotcha. So if we can take any best practices from this film, I say go see Moonlight if you're a leader. Uh, now, if, it's, if this is going to cause you to stumble or something, I mean, by all, no means say that I've... Yeah. I've Lisa told me to... Down, <laughs> yeah, took you down a dark path. Um, but this is definitely, I think, a movie that leaders need to watch because I think they need to be connected to what's going on in culture. And I think this is right. an important movie because it touched so many people. Yeah, it was Best Picture uh, at the Oscars and has won many awards. And so I think it's important that we go. We wouldn't be sending you to say it's not like soft porn or anything like that. Like it's not that. Um, so we're not sending you to. There is one scene, uh, a kissing scene, but there's nothing like. Again, if you if you watch Scandal but can't watch this, then, I mean, it's, it's a lot. If you've seen Scandal, you've seen a lot more or How to Get Away with Murder or any of those things, you've seen a lot more. So I would encourage you to watch this and really interact with the film um, because there's a lot of talk around it. And I don't think that the black conservative evangelical that, that would take the position that um, homosexuality is in has talked through it critically and talked through movies like this. So I'd, I'd encourage you um, to go see it and engage. What about you, Malik? I, I want to speak just very specifically here. Uh, if you're raising young black men or discipling young black men or even older, I think you need to uh, engage in all of the topics that we discussed today because these are things that are prevalent within the culture. Uh, whether you see them or not, they are there. And, and need and deserve a fitting response. So that would include the, the toxic masculinity that we do sometimes propagate from our churches, but also that comes from hip hop. Uh, and also the discussion of understanding the lack of linearness of, I guess, homosexuality in the culture today. Meaning that mm -hmm. the, the term just labeling something gay breaks down a lot of different ways. And like I said before, you know, we, we can't oversimplify it. So show up for the discussion, engage, and be sure to have a biblical response. Mm -hmm. And the, I think what we didn't touch on is the need for a same-sex affection that's not sexual. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but we see like John laying on Jesus, 
You know what I'm saying? That's not meant to be sexual, but it is to show that sometimes there can be affection that is that's given for affirmation that's helpful and needful. And the the necessity of Anthony Bradley has uh, been posting a lot about the necessity for touch in a non-sexual way to helping people cope with things. Um, And if we take on this kind of Western view, then we produce stoic individuals that are out of touch with emotion and real life. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And then even, I mean, we could, I could be trailing into something else because a lot of people view this differently, but even with David and Jonathan, uh, we seeing, seeing a, 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 what's described as a deep love there. Uh, I think that's needed in male to male relationships. Uh, and of course it breaks down differently, but when that's not present, I do think we end up damaging, doing more damage than good. We end up sending young men to school angry because their fathers don't show affection. Uh, we end up producing young men who then become fathers who are emotionally distant, uh, or only know how to express the emotion of anger. Uh, so, I, so I feel like we, we've really demonstrated how to express anger a lot of different ways, but we haven't really you know, unpacked how to express other emotions. So we can do more damage than good if we just limit it to that. We need to understand that, once again, male-to-male relationships need to begin to go beyond just surface-level communication and you know the game and accomplishing a certain work task. Uh, Christ has called us to much more than that. And discipleship isn't about necessarily just fellowship, but also uh, living life together and walking through those things uh, at more of a heart level beyond just the mental level. Mm-hmm. And to think critically about, um, I was I was about to close, but then I just thought about this thought that I wanted to share. And I've shared it before on, on Jude 3 Project. Just I want to challenge us and push us to think a little bit critically about the times we're in. So navigating this phase. So um, same-sex marriage is legal in the U.S. That's something that's that's legal. It's already happening. Couples are married, you know, and it's that's that's the the that's the new normal in a sense um, in the U the U.S. And if we if we're going to um really do ministry in this time we got to think critically about how we respond to couples that come in our churches that are married that are of the same sex uh we got to think critically about how we've dealt with divorce and we have couples that are divorced and remarried without biblical reasons um and so we have to think through how that looks to have people that come and say well this couple divorced and remarried and are not biblically supposed to be together because they were remarried and they're heterosexual, but they didn't have biblical grounds. Um, and they just got a new wife and they changed, they, they, they're still at church. And you know, what do we do with that? And then you have a couple to say, well, because we didn't do divorce, right. We're going to have a real problem with how we interact in in conservative evangelical spaces or conservative Pentecostal spaces, because we were slack on divorce, I, I tell people this all the time, we're gonna have a real problem in engaging what it looks like to engage couples that are of the same sex because all of that is linked 
and when we talk about biblical marriage. So we're going to have to start thinking critically about our response. If we, you know, how are we going to respond? And I don't think enough people are having that conversation because, again, we're behind the curve. And it seems like we can't multitask. It's like we can talk about race, but we can't talk about sexuality. We can talk about sexuality, but we can't talk about race. We can talk about that. Can't talk about doctrine. Everybody can't just go off to one thing. It's so many things happening in our community, and we got to multitask. Right. Yeah. So I'm with you, but you know those are fighting words. You got some, you got some people angry. <laughs> <laughs> what about what? What did I say? Well, just the the whole remarriage, biblical remarriage and divorce and so on and so forth. That's a, that's a real issue. <laughs> so yeah, we got a multitask. Don't, don't be, don't just focus in on one thing. Don't just focus in on race, focus in on everything and look at the times and be able to give an answer for uh, what's going on in the culture. So we hope this has been helpful. We know we were kind of all over the place sometimes in this conversation, but it was just us thinking through the movie and we hope you see it. And if you see it, let us know what you think. And uh, until next time, know what you believe and why you believe it. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.